Hey, garden nerds, we have a sponsor for this episode. True Leaf Market has been a supplier of exclusively non-GMO seeds since 1974. They offer a wide selection of seeds, many of which are heirloom and organic, uh, for everything from vegetables to flowers, grains to herbs, and specialty seeds, like really cool Asian varieties and lots of stuff, like their supplies and seeds for growing microgreens and for sprouting. That's where they really shine. Their seed packets are affordable and are available in sizes for the home gardener all the way up to bulk wholesale. Visit trueleafmarket.com and use our promo code GTOTW10. That's for Garden Nerd Tip of the Week, GTOTW and the number 10. All right, check it out. Um, now on with the show. Welcome everyone to the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where garden nerds from around the world talk shop, share stories, and offer their favorite tip. I'm your host, Christy Wilhelmy. My guest this week is Nikki Schauder of Permaculture Gardens. She grows food with her husband, Dave, and their six children in Northern Virginia. She runs a program called Grow It Yourself Community and teaches online courses on permaculture. Nikki studied permaculture with Wayne Weisman and strives to educate suburban families how to provide food and medicinal plants for themselves through ecological gardening. Thanks for chatting with me, Nikki. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about you because we don't know each other yet. So let's start with your 40th of an acre. Where are you and what kind of garden do you work with? Well, we recently moved from that 140th of an acre oh. townhouse. In August, we moved to a three-acre farm in Leesburg. Oh, wow. But, yeah, it's still in Northern Virginia. And uh, it's Northern Virginia is like, I, I guess, a suburb of Washington, D.C., if you were to call that whole area. Um, and we're now in the mountains. So we used to, to garden in a tiny townhouse for, um, let's say, seven years. We were there for 15, but halfway through, we start, our kids had allergies um food allergies and we couldn't figure out what why they weren't growing the first two and so we decided we had to take things into our own hands and start growing some of the things at least ourselves because mm -hmm. our we started buying organic and everything started getting more and more expensive um and more so now so we started with tomatoes and we failed miserably <laughs> but you know what we were doing it was like just putting spaghetti on the wall so it wasn't until my husband and I went on a bookstore date and we chanced upon a homesteading book. It was one from an English family and the word permaculture was there and we were interested in it. We went down the rabbit hole of permaculture and found out it was used to green the desert. And that really caught our attention, especially where you are from, Christy. I always have a heart for that because that was what really got us into it. Like it could change the world. So it was used to green the deserts of Jordan and the lowest plateau in China. And I thought, well, if they can grow food there, then we can do it in our backyard. So we started learning more about it. We got certified and then people started coming to us. But because we're a busy family, we're like, we better just, you know, teach it online. And we started mm -hmm. doing webinars and, it, and we had to live it ourselves. So our our backyard, 140th an acre, super shady yard, covered by the big townhouse, <laughs> uh, produced for us 25% at one point, 25% of our fruits and veggies. That's impressive. Yeah. Intensive gardening, espalier trees, understory fruiting trees like pawpaw, which are great in our climate here, which is zone seven and 
um, rainy. We get 40 inches of rain. Ooh, so hardly any watering. Really, we were just channeling the water naturally into the yard, into the lettuce beds and also. So that's how we started. And so this three acre property now, are you able to grow everything or most of everything? So exciting. Um, we just walked around the property yesterday, my husband and I, and looked at the plans that we were doing and we can't implement everything at once. So in permaculture, we're starting to, we're just trying to do zone zero. That was our first few months, zone one, which is the one closer to the house. And then now our production garden. So we have eight beds. I think they're 12 by four each. They're pretty long. Eight beds. Um, and we have in them growing Napa cabbages, a lot of the, the the winter greens. So we have tree collards, which you guys can grow really well. Um, and we were trying to experiment if they would <laughs> survive here because we want perennials in our beds. Mm -hmm. uh, we're growing experimental collards. We're growing spinach and lettuce and onions and shallots and garlic. Um, Celtus. So, oh, Celtus. Yeah. Celtus is a new one that a lot of people haven't heard of, but it's an, it's an Asian, uh, like a celery lettuce combination kind of thing. Is that right? Yes. So it grows really well, but then we found out it's a little bitter. So we mm -hmm. stir fries and it's still a little bitter. The bitterness doesn't go away. So I think, I mean, if you want your bitters in your, in your diet and we're still happy to get anything fresh, we just had cabbage this, I just stir fried cabbage for lunch. Um, yeah, so it's every day we get something from the garden. We still did in the townhouse, but more so now mm -hmm. with all with all the much more land. That's wonderful. And are you keeping any animals or will you have plans for animals on this property? Absolutely. So chickens are coming in today. In fact, oh. they were delayed in the post. So I have to go, I have to go back to where here there's 10 minute drive. Um in a little farm store and I have to go back there after I talk to you and pick up our little baby chicks Yay! <laughs> so yeah it'll be a great it'll be a system and and more to come you know orchards in the plan and pathways and lots of interesting things a demo garden for small spaces to prove that you can grow in small spaces still yeah that's so. that sounds wonderful now for those who aren't familiar with the permaculture zones can you explain that just really quickly Absolutely. So zones, basically, unlike your USDA growing zones, zones in permaculture are also called zones of use. So how frequently do you visit a specific area? And so this is not necessarily concentric to your home, but sometimes it is, you know, most, most often that's the case. It's what uh, you would, you would go out to get put your herb garden right close to your home because that's where your culinary herbs should be. And then a little further on is your production garden a little further away? Is your chicken coop a little further away? Is your orchard? And the least frequently visited ones, that's like the wilderness where you're just like rambling or meditation spaces. Now, I always like to quote Bill Mollison, who's the founder of permaculture, at least the word. And he said, um, when you wake up in the morning and you put your fuzzy slippers on, to get chives for your omelet. If you come back and your fuzzy slippers are wet, you've walked too far. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't put your herb garden where you should have. Right. It was wet. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you reached out to me because you were studying the effects of compost tea on edible crops. How did that all 
research and everything that you're doing begin? Well, it began with a Google search <laughs> that said, is, is compost, aerated compost tea effective or is it worth doing aerated compost tea? And if you do that search, you will get a lot of blogs that say no. It's mm -hmm. not worth time. It's not the same effect. And it's not just a lot of blogs, but, but um, Sean Jadrin is at, He's an author, a permaculturalist, and um, he is the, uh, he is actually, if I were to have a thesis advisor, <laughs> that would be him. He's my extension agent that I uh, consulted on the day that I submitted my, <laughs> my application. <laughs> That's how like prepared I was. Um, but he, he had said um, that there were actually, he did the study. He's very, very nerd, garden nerdy to the mm -hmm. max too. and he had done a study and they said they didn't find any uh, or he had seen somebody do a study or heard somebody do a study and they said they didn't find any evidence of it but I was really interested because I found a study done by Koreans on the effects of aerated compost tea on soybean production mm -hmm. and they were using not just vermicompost but oat straw compost and um, medicinal herbs uh, Korean medicinal herb compost and they had put they had tested these three kinds of composts aerated them bubbled meaning um, they would put them in a bubbler in a in a uh, water medium so they would suspend the finished compost in a permeable bag over a water medium um, run a pump to bubble and aerate that water medium and um, now I have to read again if they fed the molasses because it's been a while since I've read that. Right, and and that's the big difference in active aerated compost tea is is two ingredients that are not in leachate or extract, which is you're inputting you're putting foods in for the microbes to feed on and multiply, and you're using aeration to bubble and uh, put bubbles in, and that's keeping oxygen in the environment so that you don't end up breeding anaerobic bacteria. That is correct. That's absolutely right. And yeah. that's, that's the aerobic bacteria that we are bubbling is the favored bacteria beneficial to our plants. Mm -hmm. And so if we can put a, more of that in a spreadable medium like water, rather than in a compact like clump of soil, we could potentially extend multiply their the inoculation of this microbiome this mm -hmm. biology into our gardens instead of having one direct space where you're just side dressing your your garden with compost and and so they the, in this korean study it was shown that not only did the roots and the plant of the soybean develop the most actually with the mix of all three but um, that it spiked, that the growth, they, they measured, they, they even um, labeled all the bacteria that they were in the samples that they were growing. <laughs> There's so much. And then after they did that, they looked at the trajectory of the life of the bacteria, of how, where, when were they alive? And there was a bell curve that spiked at day three. And so common um, now for those who do use uh, aerated compost tea would normally do it, um, bubble it for two days right before that spike happens because what mm -hmm. you're hoping for is you're hoping that you'll get them and then you'll you'll spread them around your garden and they will keep on multiplying a little bit more before they die out and 
Interesting. And, yeah, yeah, because I, you know, when I when I learned about compost tea, I learned that 18 to 24 hours is the maximum that you want to brew for because by then they've used up all the foods that are in the that you've input and they start to die off at that point. But so I guess I wonder if they're feeding additionally, like if they're adding foods through that process to make it last longer, but it may, it still falls within the range of, you know, two days is really the, it the, does. the peak. It does fall with it. And it could have been that's maybe just, you know, a little bit there. I, so I'm, 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 I'm almost certain that I probably would have, would not have written this unless they did feed it with something, uh -huh. but, um, uh, I I will double check for you. You have to that. double check. All right. Well, we'll put that link in the in the um, show notes for this, and just for the sake of of explaining the difference between leachate, compost tea, active aerated compost tree, and and extract, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of what what is leachate? So leachate would be the dredge drippings of let's say your worm bin if you had a vermicomposting bin or even just a compost bin where it's all the juice that's in the bottom of the of the bin that you just open sometimes you'll have a spigot open the spigot and let it out now they could be puddling there for more than 12 hours and potentially harboring anaerobic bacteria right and that's what uh, we don't want the pathogenic bacteria to be in our soil um, because that could have, you know, then it would increase the risk of food-borne, soil-borne food, you know, um, uh, diseases, so soil-borne diseases in, in your plants. So we don't want um, that to, to use yeah. that. Now, some people have successfully done it, used leachate, uh, well, and yeah, but I, I try, try not to do that. Yeah, and I can tell you from personal experience, I have drained off the leachate from my worm bin and without diluting it, which you are supposed to dilute anyway, if it smells like garbage, no, don't use it. Here's my story. I, mm -hmm. I used it undiluted. It smelled awful. I poured it on my Swiss chard and the next day, all of my Swiss chard was dead, limp, lifeless, completely dead. Oh so, gosh. uh, I was, I was testing it on an extreme level. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you tested it out. Yeah. And, and I suppose that if I had diluted it, maybe the impact wouldn't have been so noticeable, but I was making a point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unintentionally. So yeah, you brought that up. Um, yeah. And so then an extract is just when people take compost, put it in a mesh bag, put it in some water, and massage the bag to extract what microbes are in the compost out into the water and maybe some nutrients that are in it. But but if you're, you know, a lot of people want to make compost tea or think that making compost tea is by soaking in a bucket of water for, you know, a week or whatever. And that is going to breed, unless you're aerating it, that's going to breed anaerobic bacteria. And so it's yeah. not essential. It's not the best way of doing things. And it can, in, in fact, be harmful. Mm -hmm. um, although there is some information out there about anaerobic bacteria being beneficial, like in, in the sense of Bokashi, uh, that's a fermented anaerobic yeah. process. So, so that's a different kind of composting system. Yeah. Have you tried that yourself? I have not, but I have friends who do Bokashi. And and at my community garden, they use a Bokashi spray from a bottled solution, you know, EM Bokashi, you can buy that. Um, and they spray that on the compost piles to keep them from smelling, which is 
interesting, is it yeah. not? It, so it has a different, it still smells. It's just a different fermented smell, like you would right. when you open your kimchi or your sauerkraut. Right. So it, it, I, I have done it and it's, it's anaerobic bacteria, but it's a two-stage process. So that's first that one where it is anaerobic and you're hopefully cultivating the probiotic, you know, the, what it would be the, the biotic that, that would ferment that, that, uh, your media, all your organic matter. But then when you put it out, the second stage is you have to put it out and dig it up and dig it into your garden somehow. And then there's the aeration that hopefully nullifies any pathogenic stuff. Right. But the predominant is the beneficial probiotic, hopefully bacteria that's in, that's in Bokashi. Yeah. And, and so back to the extract for a second, if you are just putting a bag of compost into a bucket of water, um, you do want to aerate it before distributing it so that it kills off the anaerobic bacteria and helps bring in some, you know, lets the aerobic bacteria start to form. Um, but I'm a big fan of brewing compost tea with an aerator, uh, you know, a water, it's a, a pump that shoots air through the water and it gives, you get bubble. I mean, there's studies that even go to bubble size, like which bubble size is best and <laughs> i haven't i haven't really looked for that deep Whoa. into it but it exists you know um so yeah and, and that's a legitimate concern even with aerated compost tea and this is sean again emailing me um she, he said more recently there's been some concern about foodborne pathogens in compost tea um because he says the greatest risk like uh, comes from adding sugars or amendments to the teas Right. So even that molasses stage, I think um, that's where they're, because it's sugar that it might also feed the anaerobic bacteria. But I think as long as you're bubbling, you put it before you bubble, it should be good. But if you put it after you bubble, then you might, you know, it might, right. not, might not do it. The thing. Yeah. And, and Dr. Elaine Ingham, who I learned compost tea from, she's not a fan of adding molasses for one mm -hmm. reason or another. It's been so long. I can't remember uh, exactly why, but you know, she's big on foods and making sure there are enough foods in, in the compost tea so mm -hmm. that the microbes don't die off. Um, so, you know, I tend to brew for 18 to 24 hours and then distribute within two hours of brewing. So once you take the pump out, you have to distribute it. You can't just let it sit there for a while. Right. Have you, have you included, well, I have so many questions. <laughs> I was just like, how much, <clears throat> how much of your research, um, you know, like, what does your research entail? What are you, let's break it down. What are you doing? Yeah. So I am mimicking the Korean research, except for the fact that I am going to be looking at nutrient density in three vegetables, kale, cabbage, and lettuce. And so from this, the way that they've done it is they have um, foliar sprayed the compost tea every week. So I'm going to do like a foliar spray and a root drench every week for the compost tea, and then I'm going to do it alongside an NPK application of the same. So from seedling stage, and this is where it's exciting because as I'm learning more about plant physiology from someone named John Kempf, and he, he should have him here. <laughs> He's a great, uh, really in-depth into how photosynthesis, like there are four stages in his, he has something called a plant pyramid. And like in the first stage, even for the plant, his, his main thing is, um, he has a very bold assertion that all plants can be free of disease and insects 
as long as you've hit all their Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is his plant pyramid. Uh-huh. And so, so the first part is is that plant physiology, if that plant physiology ladder is um, making sure that they do 100% photosynthesis. And why do I say that? Is that oh, so then I'm I'm thinking okay, if I see pests on my plants. I know that there's something missing there. They're not doing 100% of their photosynthesis. They're not going up that ladder. They're not optimally healthy. So I'm looking at my seedling trays now. I have several of them in the basement. And I see some trays with lots of flies in them. You know how when you start seedling trays and then your whole house is full of flies <laughs> and zoom all that? Okay. Yeah. That means there's not some there's something going on. Um, as this is just from what I'm learning recently. So <laughs> I may have more to more to say in the future, but this is apart from what I'm learning. This is because they're not optimally healthy, even as seedlings. Mm-hmm. And so I think it does make sense that that Korean study started from as seed, you know, from the start to start from germination. You are first, you know, you are spraying. Um, so that's my study. It would be foliar spray or and root drenches for, for every week from germina- germination to in Maturity. the ground harvest. Yeah. Maturity. Oh, okay. And I, you already sort of answered uh, this. Uh, I was going to ask what your initial findings are, um, but so you've you've seen that already. How have you been? Are you have you started the study? Or are you still in the preparation so April stage? 1st, April 1st is when I start the study. I just got really excited. Okay. And I'd been emailing you for a, a while back to like a, a year ago or so about yeah. things. So I thought I might as well tell her about this one. But I am starting it on my own home stuff first because the the officers of the grant have to still come back to me and chat with me about the details and such. So I can't officially start till April first, but I'm just unofficially starting in my in, with my own seedlings. Okay. And by the time this airs, it will be people. It will be in April, so we'll have you'll have to post some updates uh, when you I'll start seeing. Yeah. Results. Yeah. And, and then the end is. Bio, uh, I'm working with an organization called Bionutrient, Bionutrient Institute, and they have the capability to measure the nutrient density of my plant. So they said that'd be great if I can send them samples and what any farmer, any home grower could do this if they wanted to for a fee. Um, and I think they have like different tiers of you know involvement in that in that organization if you wanted um, to participate in their own citizen science researches. And one of them is that, is like, how can we get like a data, a spectrum of different grown crops, like say carrots, carrots from Walmart, carrots from Whole Foods, and see how, what, where do they fall in the spectrum of all the samples that we have in terms of nutrient density so that we can sway the consumer in the end, like not by according to how big it looks or shiny, but how nutrient dense the product actually is. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I've I've tended to shy away from speaking to nutrient density in organics because there hasn't really been a solid study that I can point to that shows that result. Um, I, I talk about organics from omitting the pesticide load and the benefit to the environment. Um, but once we get a study that I can really truly point to that is science-based and statistically outlined about the nutrient density improvements in organics, I look forward to seeing the results of that study because then it really, that's just like science sealed delivered as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It already is. 
I think organics are already the way to go. But we we've already seen how changing the way we farm and the way we treat our soil makes a huge difference in carbon capture or expenditure. And so we need to make those changes anyway. So nutrient density is just like, okay, fine. On top of all of that, fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's my next question? Cause I I feel like we could go down this rabbit hole for hours. Uh, uh, Let's talk about for people who want to brew compost tea, what should they know going into it? Well, there's this link that I will send you on on um, the same thing that to reduce that that we mentioned earlier about um, the sugars or amendments to the teas um, and how to brew it safely. Okay. The way that I'm doing it now, and I didn't read, he probably sent it to me as well. I did, um, is that I do, there are different options aside from molasses as your prebiotic um, fish emulsion kelp maybe comfrey and that can be some other test you know that somebody else does um, that would help make sure that it's it's safe that there is not going to be any pathogens coming from your aerated compost tea I'm in my research I'm actually going to send out the samples uh, six times I believe six times in my Six, I put six times, but I don't think that's a year, six times in a year okay. to have that makes sure that there are, that they're not pathogenic. Now, I don't know how exactly, I'm hopefully FedEx so that they can get it right away. I do have a microscope. I did not take Elaine Ingham's course. <laughs> <laughs> no way, you know, for me to see if I, if I see any pathogenic bacteria in, in my microscope. So the home brewer might not have a microscope or, you know, the means to send off their samples. But I just wanted to prove through this research, if you could do it, um, you know, how often would, would I see it a good batch versus not a good batch? Mm-hmm. Or what would I need to change in order for it to become a good batch? So that's part of the research is also ensuring that the compost tea that you are using is pathogen free in the first place. Yeah. And it's such a fine line between doing it wrong and doing it right. I think that scares people off. But if you're doing it, if you learn from the right people and, you know, and are doing it right, your garden benefits. I've seen such an improvement in my soil and just the ability for my plants to grow and put down deep roots is one thing, but also drainage. You know, I we here in California have been hit with these atmospheric rivers and, and flooding is happening all over the place. I have no flooding in my backyard because the whole thing is covered in like four inches of mulch. And it took six months for that change to happen where the microbes started, you know, um, started multiplying because they had fungal foods and they, and we had flooding. We put in a French drain, it did nothing. And then we still had flooding. And then I put the mulch down and the, um, the, the, permeability of my soil and it digs like butter and it's that's microbial life that's that's the difference and compost tea does the same kind of thing for compacted soils and helps aerate you know bring aeration and microbes that tunnel through you know everything I'm speaking in complete layman's terms here because I just don't I I don't I don't like to use what do you do what do you use as your prebiotic what do you use as as your you know it's funny because I don't like to use fish hydrolysate because it stinks and so I use a a a vegan alternative that is leonardite based um which 
is something that there's it's kind of controversial uh, because it's not really supposed to help breed any fungal dominance in in compost tea but I have found I did a study and I posted it somewhere and I'll have to find that I sent a picture to a group where I had fresh uh, it's called uh, bio alive or thrive alive I forget it's from uh, earth earth fort I'll put a link to that in the show notes thank you yeah and it's um it's supposed to help uh, you know, serve as what fish hydrolysate would be instead. So I use that. I use kelp meal. I use alfalfa meal. Um, mm-hmm. I put in a little insect frass also yeah. uh, for the chitinase and, or, you know, for the chitin. And uh, I have other things I probably put in there, but it's pretty straightforward uh, substituting t- for a vegan alternative instead of using uh, fish hydrolysate. And I don't use molasses. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and do you have a, do you have a system that you use a pump that you, you know, a product that you use that you'd recommend? Yes. So I use the, and I'm not a spokesperson for them or don't get affiliate <laughs> T lab just cause it's simple. And I want it, but you could, when I demonstrate this, when I go to the mother earth news fair conferences, it's a bamboo stick with, uh, you can use a bamboo stick where you suspend a pantyhose filled with your compost <laughs> and then the air the air pump from your your fish tank which is about 700 g gph i think that's the intensity that they okay um yes so it's a small pump usually you'll buy it if on amazon believe it's about 30 dollars right now for that pump but everything else you might already have at home your five gallon bucket um water water that's rain from a rain barrel we also have we are we are on a septic and well and our well water is a little, when we tested it, was very acidic mm. when we came. So I am, I mean, we, we have a neutralizer, but I'm still using rain barrel water just to make okay. sure. And if you're in the cities, you don't want to use the chlorinated water because that might just kill off all the good bacteria. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I have, I use a boogie, uh, boogie brew has a hose end filter that uh, eliminates chlorine and chloramine, which are the two mm-hmm. big you know, biological killers in our, in our tap water. So um, I'll put a link to those things in the show notes. We've already kind of talked about red flags, but, you know, what should people be aware of to know if their tea is healthy or not? Before they spread it in their... In their yeah. Uh, is yeah. there anything well, that, they can... that, that the smell, like you mentioned, that's the hard part. That's why you, you shouldn't use the the fish because then it'll mask all the smell like if it smells bad you know that it's not the right thing it has to smell earthy somehow no even no smell and then the other thing is I guess physically that's one thing that I would look for don't let it stay there just stay there for a long time after you brew it and you turn Mm -hmm. off the pot you want to be make sure that you you use it right away um so that's something else it's it's about the fungal population but yeah, another thing is the color will be brown, blackish brown. So don't let that worry you. It's not going to be white. <laughs> and yeah, foam, else, foam yeah. is okay. Yeah, foam is okay. If you have um, a pH meter, it should be around the neutral. 7.0 pH. Yeah, not exactly all the time. But yeah, you don't want to, you don't, it, it shouldn't be less than 6.0. Four, I think. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I do have a microscope. So I do try and look at my tea under a microscope to make sure it's alive and moving. Cause you can, even if you don't know what, how to identify microbes, you can still, you can see pathogens look different and, uh, and like, you know, the kind of bacteria that are, that are harmful or pathogens, they have this funky look to them. And, um, and if you see motility under the microscope, you know, you've got biologically active microbes in your tea. So that's good. But I know not everyone has, hardly anyone has a microscope. I'm just the, <laughs> on the nerdy side. All right. All right. Well, it's tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? My tip would be the thing that we talked about earlier, where if you see flies on your seedling tray, try spraying them with comp aerated compost tea and see what happens. That's a great idea. And, you know, a lot of times people's seedlings, they end up with uh, uh, soil gnats, you know, little, yes. they come out of the soil and they birth in wet soils. And a lot of times those bags just come with the eggs in them and there's not much you can do. Have you, you'll have to try and experiment and see if compost tea reduces those at all. Have you tried it all already or no? Well, that's what I'm trying now. So I don't okay. know, the, I don't know the results yet. Okay. But I'm, I, I do see difference between my different trays. Why do some of them get attacked and not the others? And then I'm thinking that there must be something that I can do about it because as going back to that plant pyramid that I explained or as the the plant optimizes its metabolism, it becomes more and more immune to the the bugs, and the bugs actually die or something bad happens to them when they come near the plant. So that's why you wouldn't see them. And I wonder if that might happen in seedling stage two. So yeah, I'd love for everybody to be a citizen scientist and nerd out about this. <laughs> That is exactly what I was just going to say. Citizen science, garden nerds, get on it. It'll be fun. <laughs> and you can share your results as you go uh, either on the blog post that goes along with this podcast or, you know, contact Nikki and let her know what you're doing. It'll be fun. Speaking of which, uh, first of all, thank you for being on the podcast. This has been a scintillating conversation. Uh, where should people go to find you? Oh, growmyownfood.com is our website where you can join our Grow It Yourself community. We have a free trial. Um, it's a really lovely, positive, encouraging, inspiring space where you can find other people in your own growing area. And we always have a Wednesday watch party. So if you are a garden nerd, we're always studying on Wednesdays, 9 a.m. your time, California, 12 noon um, Eastern time. We're always going through a certain theme, like. Now we're doing Michael David Phillips Holistic Backyard Orchard, which is all about holistic sprays in the orchard. And then last year, last month we did soil. Every week was a soil, an hour of soil listening to, and then 45 minutes and then we chat. But aside from that, there's a lot of other cool things in the group going on. So we hope you'll join us there. And are you on any social media platforms you want to point to? Yeah, we're permaculture underscore garden at on Instagram and on Facebook, we're permaculture gardens one. Um, those are the two places, but growmyownfood.com is where I hang out the most. All right. Excellent. Well, garden nerds, you got an earful today. <laughs> I'll uh, be putting links to Nikki's website and all of the things that we talked about this week on gardennerd.com. 
We'll also post links to her social media and her online courses and community. So you can check that out. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Thanks to our sponsor, True Leaf Market, for supporting this episode. And you'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our GardenNerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!